Uh, if you have your uh, copy of God's Word, your Bible with you, I encourage you to open it up to the book of James. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can find one around you, either in the rack under your chair or a rack close by. And uh, you can open up to the book of James. The book of James is after Hebrews. It's way almost near the back, so if you can look where I am in mine, it's pretty far back there, the book of James. Uh, and that's where we're going to be. We're starting a new series in James this morning. Uh, we're not going to cover the whole book of James. It's only a short series, only four weeks. Couldn't cover all of James in four weeks uh, because we have global outreach starting in October. Uh, But we do want to start the book of James. We're going to do four messages from the book of James and probably pick it up again sometime down the road. Um, but we'll get through basically chapter one in these next four weeks, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna cover that, and that's where we'll be as we finished up John last week, and so that's where we're gonna be for the next several weeks uh, as we begin a series on the book of James. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. It's not a very long, it's one of the shorter books in the Bible. It's only five chapters. In fact, I'd encourage you to read it this week. If you need to read just a chapter a day, read a chapter a day, you can do it in five days. What you're going to find is this, if you haven't read it or you haven't read it in a long time, is the book of James is uh, a very practical book. In fact, as books in the Bible go, um, there's a lot of application in James. It's going to sound very much to you, if you've read the book of Proverbs, like, a pro- like, like the book of Proverbs almost. A lot of Proverbs, a lot of sayings on how to live wisely as a Christ follower, as a Christian. And that's what you'll find in there. But we've called this series Putting Your Faith to Work because pretty much the whole message of the book of James, I would say, could be best summed up in a couple verses that we find in chapter 2, which say this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What James is saying is that, look, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you're going to follow Jesus, then you ought to have actions and works, as he calls it, that line up with that confession of faith of who you say you are. And we believe that too today. We have other cliches and colloquialisms that we use to communicate that. You know, your actions are speaking so loud that I can't hear what you're saying. We would say sometimes when someone's actions don't line up with their words. Uh, And James is kind of saying that, that look, if you're going to say you have faith in God, then your life, the way you live, ought to bear that out. Now, let's make no mistake about it. We are saved not by things that we do. We are saved or we are reconciled to God or we are forgiven uh, by one thing, one work, and that's only the work that Christ did. It's not any work that we do. But even Martin Luther, who was uh, a great reformer of the 16th century, uh, said this, we are saved by faith alone. That's absolutely true. What we believe as Christians, but the faith that saves us is never alone. In other words, it always has works, it always has actions, it always has a life lived that follows along with it. I go back again to our three words that we use at Mount Hope, learn, love, live. All three of those together are important. You learn about God, we love God, and you live. Your actions, the life that you live, lines up with what we live and believe. So we're going to be in this series again for the next four weeks. Today we're going to talk specifically, chapter one, I start with the question of what about trials? Trials. 
What if your blessings come in raindrops was the song that's saying. You know, maybe if you're in here and you come regularly and you're a Christian, you come to church, maybe you came to church for the first time because somebody told you that if you will become a Christian, that your life will be easier. That if you will become a Christian, if you'll follow, you know what you need? You just need to follow Jesus and everything's going to be easy. You want trials. You want to have these trials. You want to have these difficulties. Maybe you came to follow Jesus because somebody told you your life would be easier if you did. And you've been in church and you've been a Christian long enough to know that wasn't the case. <laughs> that in fact, sometimes it's just the opposite. Sometimes the fact that you choose to follow Jesus, to worship God, to be a Christian, brings trials to your life that you would otherwise not even have to think about or worry about. And so you have trials and we have trials. And we're going to talk today about what do you do in the midst of those trials. But before we do, you need a little background, you need a little context as we come into a new book of the Bible. I always want to talk a little bit about context. Context is important. The context of a particular passage where it falls in scripture, what comes before it, what comes after it, informs any particular scripture. You need to know that. But then the historical context that a, uh, the Bible or a passage is given is important because you need to understand this wasn't written directly to you. It had a first audience and what is being said to that first audience, we are then applying to our lives. It's important to understand that. And so who's writing it and who is he writing to? The Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit inspired all of this word, but he used humans to write it. So which human did he use to write the book of James? Well, you might have guessed it. His name was... James, there you go. See, you knew this. James. James, this particular James, was the half-brother of Jesus. So Jesus, born of Mary, uh, impregnated by the Holy Spirit, born of Mary, virgin birth, uh, also had Mary and Joseph. So Joseph, uh, Jesus is... I guess you can call him stepfather of sorts. Uh, he wasn't biologically Joseph's child. Uh, but James was. James was the biological son of Mary and Joseph, okay, together, and brother of Jesus. And so he grew up with Jesus, in the same household with Jesus, all right? And so you think about how James could have introduced himself. I mean, if you had that kind of cred, right? What would be your bio, right? James, the brother of the Messiah, right? Or growing up, James, the, the brother of the Lord, right? <clears throat> that might be what you'd put on the back of your book, you know, that you're going to publish your bestseller. <clears throat> Listen how he starts. James, a servant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's stop there for a second, because <clears throat> to me, if you're not a Christian, that may be the greatest proof of the lordship of Jesus Christ of any sentence ever written in history. How many of you have a brother or sister? How many of you have ever called them Lord? No? What would it take for you to call your brother or sister Lord? You'd be like, they have to rise from the dead. That would be maybe. So is James, the brother of Jesus, you know, sees him, grows up the whole time with him, calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is convinced that Jesus was not just any man. Jesus was not just his half-brother. Jesus 
was Lord and God and nothing less than that. So that's who's writing it. Who's he writing to? He says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Well, what's going on there? That seems kind of strange. 12 tribes, dispersion. Let me unpack those words just for a second. 12 tribes is a way of describing the Jewish people. Jewish people were uh, born of 12 sons, uh, Jacob and And so they're often referred to as the 12 tribes collectively. And so he's writing to Jewish Christians. This is very early on in the church. Most of the church is made up of Jewish believers at this point. There are no lot of non-Jewish believers. That comes within the next few years as the gospel continues to go out from Jerusalem, Judea to Samaria. He's, He's writing primarily to Jewish people who have come to believe in Jesus. And he says in the dispersion. Because they were exiled. There was persecution going on for the Jews and especially for Jewish Christians. And they were exiled throughout the empire. They were experiencing persecution. The Jewish people themselves were experiencing persecution. But if you were a Jewish Christian, you had a special amount of persecution. Because not only did the larger culture not like you, the Jewish people didn't like you either. You really had no advocate. And so people were abused. They were taken advantage of. In fact, they were, uh, their possessions were taken from them. They were destitute in many ways. And they were experiencing a lot of hardship. And so it's into this context that James is writing to these people. And so what advice, what counsel does James give to these people experiencing this hardship, this difficulty? What would you give? Uh, maybe you'd say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Or oh, this is really difficult. Or... You know, buck up, you're going to make it. Or, you know, I don't know what you would say. Here's what James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, that's different. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy when you face trials. Consider it joy when you face trials and difficulty. Now, I don't know where you are in life. I don't know your story. But in a room this size with this many people, no doubt some of you are in the midst of a trial, a test. You may be in the midst of it. You may be just coming out of it. If you're not, then you're probably heading into one eventually. Now, when you're in a trial, there's probably a lot of words that come to your mind. Probably a lot of emotions that come to your mind. I don't know if joy is one of them. But James says, count it joy. Consider it joy when you come to a trial, a difficulty, a testing. For the last few minutes we have together, I want to look at these two questions. Why? Why as a Christian should you count it joy when you face a trial? Why as a follower of Christ should you even think about being joyful in the midst of a trial? And then secondly, how? How can you do it? How is it even possible? So first question, why? Just before I get there, I want to just say this. Don't hear what James is not saying, all right? Consider it joy when you come to various trials is not, he is not saying that trials are fun. It's not saying that trials are desirable, trials are are easy. He's not saying that. 
He's not saying that Christians are supposed to be people that somehow don't live in reality and deny the reality of difficulties and trials that come. He's not saying that. He's very careful to use the word consider it, consider it, not consider it, consider it or count it. In other words, take a circumspect look at the whole situation as a Christian and when you do, when you take everything into account of who God is and who you are and what's going on, then count it joy when you come to a trial. Why does he say that? Why should you do that? Two reasons. Two reasons why you can count it joy when you come to a trial as a Christian. And the first reason is this, because God does his best work in the most difficult times. God does his best work in the most difficult times. James tells them, consider it joy when you fall, come to trials. He reminds us of a truth that we don't necessarily like. We don't necessarily want to embrace, but it's true nonetheless. We just heard the lyrics of that song, and the question asked, what if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? What if it is that the difficulty that you're experiencing, that the trial that you're experiencing is God's mercy working in your life? I think that's very similar to a what James is raising, the topic James is raising through here. We see it throughout scripture as we look at the men and women God uses. It's through the crucible of life that God prepares and perfects people for himself and for his purposes. David, if you're familiar with the story, can only fight Goliath after he's killed the bear and the lion. David's only ready to be king after he's dealt with Goliath and Saul. Moses spent 40 years on the back of the desert before God was ready to use him. Esther's faith became real when she was faced with the death and extermination of her people. It took a famine and the death of her husband for Ruth to come and know and trust God. God does some of his best work in the most difficult times. May not see it that way, may not like it, may not look at it, but the truth is... That's what happens. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If you followed God for any length of time, look back and ask this. When did you learn the most? When did you come to understand the most about who God is? And his love for you. It's in the midst of struggle and uncertainty that we learn things about God we can never learn in life easily. We come to understand more. It's quite simply, it's too easy to not rely on God when things are easy. So we consider it joy when you come to a trial because it's where God is doing some of his most important work. Second reason is this. Consider it joy when you come to a trial because trials increase your faith. Because trials will strengthen and grow your faith. I liken it to a muscle. It's like this. That it's like a physical muscle. That's not a picture of me. It's, um, could be, that's too buff. Um, 
It's like a muscle, right? I, I, I asked, uh, thinking about this illustration, I asked Scott Molgard this week, and uh, you may know Scott. Scott goes to our Belmont campus. He, was, he used to attend here at Burlington before we planted Belmont a few years ago. And Scott is a personal trainer, and he also participates in these like New England strongman competitions. So I've never been to one, but I imagine he's out throwing tree stumps and tossing trees over fences or whatever they do. I don't know. Trying to be New England's strongest man. But anyway, Scott, I thought, Scott, I thought, Scott, tell me about muscles. Tell me, tell me about what, what you know about muscles and how they grow and how they work. And this is what he said. He said, in strength training, he said, muscles have strength we currently do not access. thought that was interesting. He said, there's only one way to access that strength, and that is to put the muscle under trial and stress. You put the muscle under stress, and eventually extra tissue tissue is generated to handle the strain you experience, and you experience a level of strength you did not have access to previously. You put the muscle under stress, And you experience and have access to a level of strength you did not previously have access to. This sounds a lot like James is saying about trials and faith. Because James says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, what he says is when you go through trials, your faith becomes mature. That's what that perfect and complete means. Your faith grows and strengthens and becomes mature when you go through trials. Because the truth is, any trial you experience is going to be a test of your faith. Almost any trial you go through is going to be a do you believe moment. You're going to go through something, and really the faith, the test is do you believe? Do you believe God is good? Do you believe God loves you? Do you believe God is for you? Do you believe that his plan is better? Do you believe that his commands are better than your wants? Test of your faith. James says when your faith is tested, it'll come through and become mature. It's true. Faith is like the Christian, the faith-enhancing drug is what trials are. They grow it at an exponential rate that might not otherwise grow when everything is pleasant and easy. Think about the people you most respect as Christians that follow the Lord, those maybe elder statesmen or stateswomen of the faith. People who are in their latter years, you just see them as maybe a kind old man Or a kind old woman who gives your kids candy or something. Don't be fooled. These are generals of the faith who have come through hard times. Had their faith tested and passed the test. What you don't realize is the price that they paid along the way. What you don't see is many of them have come through financial difficulties, depressions and recessions. They've come through and had to have their faith through lost jobs and missed paychecks. They've continued to trust God through relationship hardships when they've been betrayed or hurt. Even family members maybe who have hurt them. They've continued to learn to love and trust God. And yes, the longer they live, the longer you live, the more loss you have to live through. 
loss of loved ones, loss of possessions, loss of positions, loss of income, loss of freedom, loss of independence, loss of companionship, loss of purpose. Each one a trial. Each one a do you believe moment. And as they come through it and through that trial, the faith strengthens and grows. It's not the trial alone that brings maturity. It's the perseverance through the trial that brings maturity. It's not unlike uh, oyster. We think of oysters and pearls and the way an oyster makes a pearl, right? You know how it starts, right? One single grain of sand. The grain of sand is an irritant to the oyster. The pearl is a protection against the irritant that grows around the grain of sand in order to protect the pearl from the irritant. It's not unlike our faith. Trial comes as irritating. It's difficult. It's not welcome at times. But it will grow into something beautiful. It can grow your faith and strengthen it. We talk a second to parents. Parents, as parents, I think at times we often want our kids to avoid as many trials as possible. We want to protect them. We want to watch over them. We want to keep them from experiencing trials and difficulties. We may know what we have gone through. We want to protect our kids. that they, We don't want them to go through what we went through. And so we watch over their wives. Maybe helicopter over their wives. We protect them. Watch out for them because we're their parents. That's what we're there for. Or maybe someone didn't do that for you and you're going to make sure that it's done for your child. Okay. Certainly, one of the roles of a parent is to protect, to watch over. But let me push back on that a second, because sometimes if, if it is true that faith is grown through trials, and we protect kids from all the trials, might it be that we are protecting them from the very things that might grow their faith? That to put it another way, that a faith that is untried is a faith that all too easily becomes untied. That a faith that is untried, untested, is a faith that all too easily becomes untied from God himself and from the roots and from the foundation. Because if they never see you walk through a trial, how will they themselves know how to hang on to God through a trial? It's the trial that will teach us to hold on to God and who he is. We want to shield and protect our children from all kinds of trials, but we may be protecting them from the places that God is wanting to grow their faith. We need to teach our children that trials will come, but we can hang on to God through the trials to teach children about that. Because if you don't talk about it, if you don't teach it, if they don't see it, how will they ever know how to hang on to God? We don't want to talk about trials sometimes as parents with kids. We don't want to see them. So we, so we say, don't talk about that in front of the kids. Or we'll wait till the kids go to bed. Or we don't want the kids to hear that. We don't want them to worry about that. We don't want them to see it. And so they never see a trial. And they never think anything's wrong with mom and dad. And they never think mom and dad ever struggle or ever have a difficulty. Because God forbid they would ever come and ask a question. And you don't have an answer to it. And isn't that the point? That you don't have the answer. But you'll hang on to God through the question and through the trial 
And so that maybe one day when they face a trial, that they will also know that they can hang on to God through the trial and through the difficulty. Now look, you as parents, your role, you can't turn a fire hose on them and let everything, let everything all out. I'm not saying that. I'm saying use wisdom. I'm just saying sometimes maybe that pendulum has swung a little bit far to one side when we're protecting them that we may be shielding them from the very things that God is wanting to use to grow their faith. Because it's faith that grows through trials. Those two things, why we should be joyful, why we can be joyful in the midst of trials, because God does some of his most important work in difficult places, and because when you come through trials, it grows our faith. But you're either in a trial, you're coming out of one, or you're going into one, so how do you do it? Two points here again, quickly. Two points, quickly. How do you do it when you're in the midst of a trial? How do you be joyful? How do you maintain your joy in the midst of a trial? The first thing is this. Stop asking why and start asking what. Stop asking why and start asking what. Back to James, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When we're going in the midst of a trial, our temptation is to say, Why God? Why me? Why is this happening? Why now? Why is this happening? Why me? Why me? But the truth is, so often, or, or very so infrequently, does God answer the why question? And here's my belief, that if God doesn't answer the why question, you and I don't need the answer to the why question. A lot of times, even if we got the answer to the why question, we still wouldn't know what to do. It's not a why question, it's a what question. James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. What do you need? You need wisdom. You need wisdom when you're going through a trial. What do you want me to learn here, God? What are you trying to teach me in this trial? What do you want me to do in the midst of this trial? What truth remains true even in the midst of my changing circumstances. Change the why questions to what questions if you're going to maintain joy in the midst of your trials. What is it you need from me, Lord? It's the first way to maintain joy in the midst of your trials is stop asking why. Why is going to take you down a road we only see dimly. I wish I could give you the why answer. The truth is, I usually can't. We only see dimly this side of heaven. But God promises to give you wisdom if you'll ask it with a whole heart and full of faith and you come to him single-mindedly asking for it. Secondly is this. Stop asking why, start asking what. Second thing is this. Evaluate temporary situations in light of eternal realities. Back to James, verse nine. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. 
so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Evaluate temporary situations in light of eternal realities. James says this, look, if you're poor and times are difficult and things are hard in your life and you don't have a lot and it's economically difficult and financially difficult, look, remember who you are in God. Remember that God has created you, that he loves you, that he has redeemed you, that he has bought you with the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and your self-esteem is not nearly as important as how God esteems you. That God values you and loves you. And so you may be poor in this world, but don't lose the eternal reality in light of your temporary situation. So you can have joy in the midst of your circumstances because you may be poor right now in this world, but that is not the reality of who you are in God. He gives a caution to the rich after this, which is interesting. Be careful. Remember, your, temporary, your situation is temporary too. Everything you have will be gone at some point. Looks beautiful, it's going to fade like a flower. Don't put your faith in that stuff because that stuff is not going to last. And he gives a warning to the rich. But then he gives this final promise. And here's how this passage, this section concludes. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That's the promise. That if you and I will stay faithful through the trial and the test, that God has a crown of life. Not life just here, but life after this life. Life that goes on forever with God. Life eternal. Life with him. That if you will stay steadfast, man of God, woman of God, through the trial, that God has promised you a crown of life. And so you and I can have joy in the midst of a trial. How? Well, by asking what questions and not how questions. And by evaluating temporary situations in light of the eternal realities. Keep that eternal perspective. Rob McDonough is a man who attends this church uh, He's not here today. He's actually, he watched the first service online. I know because he texted me after service. Uh, he's too sick to be able to make it out to church on Sunday mornings with us. But he gave me permission to share a bit of his story with you this morning because I think it applies to this message this morning. Rob, back 11 years ago in 2007, had to bury his firstborn son, his 20-year-old son, David. Pastor Brian and I were called and asked to do the funeral. 2007, this is literally months after we had been coming to our new roles. Uh, I had been installed as the senior pastor in March of 2007. Pastor Brian, not too long after that, came on as associate pastor so we're literally in the roles for months, and the first funeral call we get is from Rob McDonough, who I had not seen or known Rob for years. He went to church here years ago, but when his son died, this is the call he made, told the funeral home to call Mount Hope to do the funeral for David, and so we were recently installed, and we went to the funeral home in Drakeit to do David's funeral. 
what do you say in that moment? I was curious about what I said in that moment. I actually went back and read through the whole funeral service this week to see what I actually said in that moment. Some of the things I think were completely inspired by the Holy Spirit because they were not the words of a young, unseasoned seasoned senior pastor, but I think words from God. But mostly, we kind of fumbled through it because there's no perfect words to say in that moment. But 11 years later, here's the reality. God was working in, God, in Rob's heart. No matter what we said or what we did, Reality is God was at work in the midst of that trial. Rob was at one of our praise and prayer services just a couple weeks ago. That's how I was reminded of this story because he shared the story of what had happened in the meantime. 11 years later, Rob looks back on what happened and not only does he still have his faith, but as he walks through what, according to the doctors, is a terminal cancer diagnosis with no hope for a cure, He continues to trust the Lord. He's been able to help three other fathers who in the ensuing years also had to bury their firstborn sons. He's been able to strengthen their faith and help them to trust God. And you come to a trial like that and you say, how could it be? What could happen In the midst of it, and Rob's the first to tell you it's not easy even today, and there's difficulty even today that he experiences. They're not all easy days, and the word joy is not there much of the time. But what he's learned is that he can be joyful because God is at work. God has strengthened his faith such that even now, as he walks through this cancer, that somehow... Not somehow, but because God took him through this last thing, that he can trust God in the midst of it. James says that the trial is mercy in disguise, in that God uses it to increase our understanding and enjoyment of him. Perseverance through the trial increases our faith so that we might be perfect and complete. Or to say it simply, let's put it this way. A faith untested, is a faith unfinished. A faith untested is a faith unfinished because James says the only way your faith is going to be perfected and complete is through trials. And if you don't go through trials, hanging on to God, your faith will never be finished. It will never be complete. You're going to go through them. But it's okay. In fact, you can even consider it joy when you do. Are you in a trial today? Whatever you're facing, you may be encouraged that God does not waste these times in our lives, but uses them to increase our faith. Lean into him. Ask him what he's doing, what he wants you to learn about who you are, who he is. Recognize that it's temporary circumstances in light of the eternal reality and stay steadfast. If you want complete, mature faith, you'll have to go through some trials to get it. I'm going to ask our music team to come and join me. We're going to sing another song together in just a moment. But as they're coming, let me speak to another group here just for a moment. Maybe you're here this morning, and you might look at the struggles of Christians and everything I've just said, 
struggles that look a lot like the struggles of a non-Christian. And maybe you would say, what good is your God doing you? I mean, what's the point? If I'm going to come to God and have the same trials I have now, and even, Pastor, if you're telling me I may even have more just because I'm following Jesus, I mean, what good is it? Christians endure not only the struggles of the flesh that all men endure, but also some for simply being Christians because you're counter to the trends and winds of the culture, different and distinct. So someone may say, why bother? What good is your faith doing you? No thanks. I'm good. I have enough trouble of my own. And if you can't promise me less trials, then what good are you and what good is your religion? These are not new thoughts. These are not new questions. In fact, while Jesus was nailed to a cross giving his life for the lives of those who were crucifying him, people said things like this. If you are the son of God, come down from there. He saved others. Let's see if he can save himself. They were, in a sense, saying, what good is your faith in your father if it can't get you out of this trial? If it can't get you off the cross, what good is this faith in your father? The answer to that is given to us in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says this. The Bible says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, listen to this, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And let us run with perseverance. The race marked out before us, it says in the verse right before that. So here's what it's saying. Look, Jesus endured the cross for the, you hear the word he said? For the joy set before him. You have trials, but there is a joy that is set before you. There's an eternal joy, a crown of life that's promised to you, but there's also a joy you can trust in because God is strengthening your faith and perfecting your faith even as you come through the trial. He's the perfecter of our faith, it says. Jesus is the one who perfects your faith as you come through trials. Because he endured the ultimate trial, you and I can now, through faith in him, endure whatever trial comes our way. And not only endure it, but actually take it on with joy because we know that our faith is growing in the midst of it. So brothers and sisters, consider it joy when you come into various trials. Following Jesus does not give you a pass on trials for this life. But it does give those trials purpose in your life. This is the hope of the Christian faith. 
Not that you come to Jesus and have no trials, but that in your trials, your faith in Jesus is being made perfect because in untested faith is an unfinished faith. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our Lord, we come before you this morning. And I don't certainly know everyone's story in this room, but you do, Lord. And you know the trials and the difficulties that came through those doors this morning. You know the diagnoses from the last week or months that people are living with and dealing with. You know the bills that have gone unpaid. You know the relationship strife that exists. You know the difficulty or harm that people are experiencing. Lord, you know it. Lord, I pray for us as those of us who follow you and have named the name of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. God, would you help us to be steadfast, to persevere through the trial, to keep our eyes on you and looking for what you are trying to teach us and what you want us to do. Lord, would you perfect and complete our faith even through the trials. Lead us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.